Thank you, Mr. Aaron. And it's good to be with you guys on the Sunday morning as I get set up here. So again, I mentioned this earlier last week. I gave you an update of my sleeping schedule that I didn't sleep. Uh, this Sunday, I slept a lot, and then it was just manic, Pastor Josh, for the first morning. So we'll see how he preaches. Uh, but God is going to be with us, and we're going to just invite him before I speak uh, through prayer. I invite you guys to pray with me. Lord God, you're good. Lord, as the song we just sang said, you are so, so good. Uh, Lord, and that's not just something that we sing because we think it or we feel it. Lord, we sing it because of the actions, because of the love that you have showed us, Lord, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, and as we continue to uh, unpack what a life of forgiveness means, what it looks like to learn to forgive, Father, Lord, I pray that you um, sharpen our hearts, our minds, Lord, that you soften us to the words that you're going to give us, Lord, that we may be better reflections of who you've built us to be as your children. Lord God, we say this all in your son's precious name, amen. So we are in a sermon series called Learning to Forgive. And as we talk about what it means to forgive, we've been using the word or the translation to release, that God wants us to release something, that he doesn't want us to carry around grudges and anger and bitterness towards one another. We've been using the symbolism of a grudge baby. Talk about nursing a grudge, right? And that literally when you nurse, you hold it close to you and, and you feed it off yourself, right? And that's what we do when we live a life of unforgiveness. But, un, but forget, unforgiveness is how our culture is built, it's how our world is built. Forgiving means to be weak. Forgiving means to allow harm. And so the world teaches us not to forgive, but to actually withhold forgiveness, as opposed to what we've seen in Christ. And so as we've gone through the series, as, as we've looked at Christ's words, as we looked at Christ first forgiving us and us seeking forgiveness, and last week as we looked at what does a life where we give forgiveness look like, today's message is a bit of a pattern interrupt for me. Again, this was something I was convicted of actually in New Zealand. I think I mentioned this to you guys before, that as Eric and I were on vacation and I had about a four-hour drive and I was just kind of praying through what God was doing in my life and, and through the church's life, the idea of really spending some time as a church in forgiveness, God put on my heart. And that, that started this, and so I was starting to think through, okay, what, where do we want to go? What verses do we want to do? And Okay, yeah, let's start with the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. That makes sense. And then let's talk about how we seek forgiveness from God and, and how we give forgiveness to others. Next week, AJ is going to preach on reconciliation, which is the ultimate fruit, the ultimate hope of what forgiveness can look like. And he's going to knock that out of the park. And then we're going to end again on God. But this week's message uh, was a pattern interrupt for me because it wasn't planned. When I was doing the work, the sermon series work, this one showed up almost out of nowhere. And it came from last week's text. Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 4 and got into chapter 5, and it's all about how we do life together, how we forgive one another. And the end of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to the church, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So he ties our forgiveness to others to God's forgiveness to us. 
right? And so I was reading that, and I mentioned last week that you don't have to stop and assume that Paul means to stop at the end of a chapter, because the original letters to the churches were not in chapter verse form, and so sometimes they continue on, and this is a really good example of that. And so you go on in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, and he says, So follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Just as in Christ, God gave himself up for us as a fragment and offering and sacrifice to God. And it's that line, walk in in the way of love, that was the pattern interrupt for me when I was thinking about forgiveness. Because as we learn to forgive, as we learn to release, as we learn to have a different type of relationship both with God and, and with our fellow man, the way of love is, is how we do it. And I just couldn't get away from that phrase, the way of love. And the more I thought about forgiveness, the more I thought about how I live it out, the way of love makes sense, right? This is the next Avatar movie, right? We just had the way of water. Next will be the way of love, right? And it's going to be this kumbaya moment and all the guns are going to... No, 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 no. But, but it, is, it is the way of God. It is how God is operated. It's his posture. It's his action. And it is an action, y'all. That is something that we kind of get screwed up in our English language, right? Because I can love a bunch of different stuff, right? I can love sushi, and I do. I love sushi, but that's different, right, than my love for my wife or my love for my family or my dogs, right? We have this word that we use in so many different phrases. I was at staff meeting on Monday, and I ended it, and I just said, I love y'all. And Abby responded, well, don't forget to prove it. And I was like, and I literally stopped. I was like, what? But then I thought about it. I'm like, oh, no, that makes sense, right? Because if you love someone, there is action that goes behind it. There is intentionality that goes behind it. And as we're going to see in the great love text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, it's tied into forgiveness, and so that's where we're going to go next, 1 Corinthians 13. In your Bibles, if you're reading along with us, that's going to be on page uh, 1457 and following. I just want to break for a, a moment and talk about the letter to the church in Corinth. So the epistles, these letters written by Paul, were written by an apostle to the early churches in different cities. And so if you read from the book of Ephesians, which we read last week, that was written to the church in Ephesus. The book of Corinthians was written to the, uh, the church or churches, a, a series of home churches probably, in Corinth. And Paul had started these churches. He had gotten them in the way of Jesus. He had taught them who he was, and then he went on to start new congregations. And it devolved pretty quickly. And so most of what Paul is writing is to correct things that are wrong in the Corinth church. And there is a lot wrong in the church in Corinth. There's some weird sexual immorality, family stuff going on. There's some money stuff going on. There's classism that's going on. There's division within the church. And some are like, well, no, following Jesus looks like this. And others are like, following Jesus looks like this. And following Jesus looks like that. The church in Corinth is the American church, <laughs> right? 
just all of it together. And so Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, hey, y'all, you all are missing some stuff. And chapter 12 is all about how the body of Christ, how the church together, how God puts us together in a way that we all belong to one another. And that when we work together with these different gifts and talents, this community is full. And how we all need one another. And so all of chapter 12 is about the different gifts that God gives the church. And it's not, it's, it is not expansive in the way that like, hey, if you can't find your gift, the things you're good at in 1 Corinthians 12, it, it's not meant to be that. It's meant to be an illustration of saying, hey, God has, divine, uh, has made us all unique. And in that uniqueness, we all bring something to the table and we all gain something from the others in this community. And so he talks about these different gifts, but then he says, but now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. This is after he's talking about preaching and teaching and speaking in tongues and healing and all these really cool, like, mojo gifts, right? He says, yeah, that's all great, but now let me show you the most excellent way, which connects into what he wrote to the church in Ephesus, the way of love. And, and what does that look like? And to make his point, we get 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, and I just want to read through this again. Verse 1, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you are the best preacher, Pastor Josh, and you can just keep people riveted. And people are like, this guy's awesome. But you have no love. You are a, a resounding gong. Right? You're just noise. It, it doesn't matter. He goes on to, in verse 2, and if I have the gifts of prophecy, if I can see into the future and I can see around the world the right way, and if I can fathom the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, oh, woo, fun stuff there, but do not have love, I am nothing. Y'all, one of the, the challenges, every denomination has their own weaknesses. One of the weaknesses of our denomination, specifically Lutherans, we like to have the right answers. We like to emphasize the right answers as if like, God has a test that he wants us to take. And as long as we get the right answers on the test, we've done what we're supposed to. So we prioritize the head. And Paul says, y'all, you can have all the right answers. And if you don't love, you are nothing. And he says, if I give all I possess to the poor, verse 3, and give my body over to hardship that I may boast... But do not have love, I gain nothing. He says, y'all, you can serve. You can pull yourself out. You can write the biggest check. And if you don't love, it's for nothing. Right? He compares and he contrasts. He's like, y'all, it is all or nothing when it comes to love and this action that God is seeking for all of us as his children, as the body of Christ. And it's from there that he embarks on the great love passage. This is what I preach on most often during weddings, 
right? You will see this when you go to uh, a Christian bookstore, and we normally will have it like on the walls. I grew up, and we literally had this picture frame on the walls of what is love. And again, what we're going to see is love is not this emotional feeling. Love does not particularly depend on how you feel about someone in any given state, which is good. Because how I feel about someone has a lot of external controls that I'm not always in control of, right? Has some internal controls that I'm always not in control of, right? Is my stomach upset may depend on how much emotional fuzzies I have for my wife or my dogs or the person driving in front of me, right? What we're going to see here is all of this is non-dependent on emotions, but instead action or posture that God wants for us as his children. And this is also going to be somewhat hard to swallow, because all of us, we're going to find out, and I don't know which is going to be yours, but this challenges all of us. This list, this posture is going to be something where all of us are going to be like, ooh, that one, that one hit just, just a little bit deeper. And for me, it starts with the first one. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient is actually saying love gives time. And, oh, do I not want to give time. <laughs> if you were to say, Joshua, what do you want to give up least of? It's easier for me to be like, I'll just buy them a present. Right? I'll do something for them on my time. But what patience is after is allowing someone your time, is creating space and time for them in your life. It's allowing them to have a certain amount of control over where you are and what you're doing. And y'all, that is hard. That is hard when I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me off and all of a sudden now I'm stuck at a light and I lost just a minute and a half of time. I don't know if you are like me, but then you start like going like, man, I'm going to miss happy hour now because of this. Or I'm going to miss X, Y, or Z because of that. Right? Why? They took time from me. Right? When a child or a spouse or a friend and you're getting impatient, why are you being impatient? Because you are on the clock. Or more importantly, you have them on the clock. And so we don't want to give time. And yet, Paul starts by saying, you don't want to love better? You want to live a life of love? Then give sacrificially your time to people. There are two types of time in Greek, chronos and kairos. And chronos is, there is a, uh, a, a, a time on the clock. So right now it's, you know, 10.05. That is chronos time. Uh, Kairos time, though, is the appointed time. And what God cares about is the appointed time. And he is going to bring people into your life at the appointed time. And here's the trick. Every person God brings into your life is your neighbor in that moment. And it is an appointed relationship that God has brought into your life. And he is saying, in that moment, love your neighbor as yourself. In that moment, give them your time. And that's hard. That, that is something that I struggle with because I have my own agenda. I have my own chronos time that I want to happen every single day. And you all get in my way. Right? I love you. 
I love you all so much, sort of. But I still wrestle with that. And all of us wrestle with that. All of us wrestle with giving up our time. Which then brings us to the second. Love is kind. So love is patient. So love gives itself time. And then he pairs it with love is kind. And the Greek here uh, means to be pleasant. It means a smell, fragrance. I was listening to a Bible Project podcast, and he tied it into food, ironically. But what he was really arguing for was this is hospitable time. This means, no, I'm not just going to give you time but be grouchy about it, to be cankerous about it, to be corrosive about it, but instead I'm going to give you my time, and I want this to be a pleasant, hospitable experience. And we all know people like that in our lives, right? Where like when they, maybe it's an out-of-town friend or people we grew up with or that grandma, that friend, uh, family member that you show up in their life and you just feel better. You know those, those people that just like radiate goodness and pleasantness as opposed to other people when they show up in our lives and it's just like, like, a, like a bitterness that kind of seeps in, Right? Paul writes to the church, that when you give people of your time, let it be this pleasant experience. Make it a pleasant experience. For me, I think of the Hueys. Do you guys know who the uh, Grace and Steve Huey are? They were longtime members. They helped found this congregation. Uh, they now move to the East Coast. But whenever I get an opportunity to spend time with the Hueys, I prioritize that time, not only because I love them, but because it's so sweet when I'm with them, right? They're probably in their 80s now, and they just radiate God's love and warmth, right? And, and Paul is writing to the church, like, I want all of you to be able to create those kind of experiences, to give sacrificial time and, and to give a quality of time that radiates that kindness, that warmth, that pleasantness. So he starts off on the positive, but then it's kind of this compare and contrast the, west, the rest of the way through. He goes, so first, be like this. Have this quality time. Have this fragrant time. But then it goes into what it doesn't do. And love does not envy. And love does not boast. Right, so love isn't jealous. Love doesn't see someone else and covet. Right, this is Old Testament stuff, that we are not called to see other people that God brings into our life, that there is appointed relationships with, and we start off by saying, man, I wish I had their car, or their house, or their marriage, right? Love doesn't do that. It doesn't play compare and contrast. Someone else's success doesn't mean my weakness, Right? That, that, that's a lie of the world. If someone else is succeeding, it means that I must somehow be failing. That, that's from the world's point of view, which is a zero-sum game, right? The pie is only so big, and if they have a larger slice than me, I somehow am broken. Whereas Christians, we know, no, 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 I don't need to worry about how big the pie is because I know the pie maker. I know that God is more than enough, is larger than enough, and he's pouring into me, and he's pouring into all of us as his children, and so I don't have to compare and contrast. I don't have to live a life of jealousy or of envy, right? And then life, uh, love does not boast. 
That word literally means, he, he uses a phrase in Greek, to puff up. And all of us can do this sometimes, right? Oh, let me tell you about how good I'm doing. Let me, let me and there's a difference, right? Celebrating something good that happens, God wants you to do. In fact, just a little bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to the church and he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, right? We are called to celebrate together. And so if something good happens to you, we want a community. God wants you to have a community that you can celebrate with. But so often it can turn into our sinful nature, right? Where now I'm not celebrating. I'm leaning into the envy part, right? I'm trying to goad you a little bit. Look how great we're doing. Look at my nice, fine, uh, shiny new car, right? And, and, and God's saying, no, don't, don't puff yourself up. That, that breaks relationships. When you know that you are puffing yourself up at the expense of someone else, you're putting a little bit of battery acid into that relationship. And God is saying, no, I want you to have whole loving relationships with me as your God and with your brothers and sisters, with your community here on earth as well. And so comparing and contrasting this gracious time, this fragrant time that God gives us compared to this uh, us versus them. Continues on with that a little bit. Again, it doesn't boast. It's not proud. Again, this is still going into how we have a relationship with one another. How are we comparing and contrasting ourselves and our situations with one another? Because that, that's what this is all about. Forgiveness is all about relationship. Love is all about relationships. And that is what God's primary concern is post-Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 1, just Genesis chapter 2, we have this perfect relationship with God, with each other, with creation, with the world, and then we introduce sin, right? We introduce our own agendas, our own timelines, our own brokenness, and all the relationships get fractured. And so God says, I, I want to put those relationships back together. That's Jesus' primary concern. He starts the forgiveness train. He starts the love train. And then he's like, and now I want you guys to practice that together. Love is patient. Love is kind. doesn't envy. No boasting. It's not proud. Then he uh, does not dishonor others, and it's not self-seeking. Right? It doesn't look at someone else and gossip about them. It doesn't tear them down. It doesn't nurse the grudge baby. Right? He comes in and says, no, I, I see the humanity in someone else. I realize, as the book of James says, that we talk bad about someone who's made in the image of God. He says, no, 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 we're not going to do that anymore, and we're not going to be self-seeking we're not going to put ourselves above at the expense of all other relationships in our lives. We're not going to live out of our sinful desires, but instead we're going to live out of this new creation, this new thing God is trying to do inside of us. And then, not easily angered, uh, big thing here, doesn't say love is never angry. Jesus got angry, right? There is true hurt in the world. There is true brokenness in the world, and our natural response to that is to get angry. It's the question is what we do with that anger. 
and how easily we get triggered that God cares about. Right? We talked about that last week, about not going to bed angry because we stew in it. If we don't process it in a way that allows us to get out, that's what gets, in, that's what gets us into trouble. So love's initial reaction, immediate, you know, quick trigger, isn't just to blow up at someone, right? And it keeps no record of wrongs, and this is where we get into forgiveness. <laughs> uh, I've said this every week, and I, I do want to uh, continue to reiterate it. Uh, forgiveness does not mean that you have to forget the hurt that was done to you. That's not what God is after, right? So if people have hurt you, God's response is, well, forgive and forget, Right? No, we all have to process that. We don't, God doesn't ask us to play pretend. But, but when we talk about it keeps no record of wrongs, what Paul is trying to get at is that we don't use people's past as a tool to bludgeon them with. Right? You hurt me, so I get to do this. You hurt me, so you have to carry this for the rest of your life. You hurt me, and so, yeah, I will release it from you, but be on your best guard, because I haven't forgotten, and I can pull it out at a moment's notice. Right? We've all been in those relationships. We all struggle with that, right? This idea that we can still use it as a weapon against others. And again, while forgiveness does not mean forgetting, it also means that we're not called to keep the unforgiveness or the harm spreadsheet, is what I normally like to think about it. Do we have any Excel people in the room? I know Luke Hargrove, you love Excel spreadsheets. Our head elder, he loves to export information and like send it out, right? Some people live in spreadsheets. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with spreadsheets. I like being able to find information quickly. I like organized information, but I'm also much more of a story guy, so I don't necessarily need spreadsheets. But the unforgiveness spreadsheet for me looks like this. I keep a record in my head of every time someone screwed up. And it's got the category of screw up, right? It's got the date of the screw up. And then there's probably like a comments section, like in case I needed to remember specifically, like, okay, how did they betray me again? Oh, yeah, that's right, right? They, uh, they cheated in Settlers of Catan. And now, until creation is re remade, I will never let them forget, right? And we have this list. And all of you have a separate tab, right? And so maybe my wife has one tab, and my dogs, they may have another tab. And uh, my best friend growing up, they've got a tab. And my neighbors, they have, may have multiple tabs, right? And it, it's not so much about forgetting, but it's about, no, I need to keep all of these in order so I can use them at will. So I can use them as a weapon for a future argument or a future break in the relationship that I can feel justified in holding them to account. We all do this. And Paul writes to the church, and he says, y'all, that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but it is not using it as a weapon to keep relationships broken. Right? And 
that's hard because, again, this is so countercultural. This is counter everything we learn about. It's counter all the little tribes that we live in, right? We are a very, very tribal society. My tribe is the community I live in. My tribe is my skin color. My tribe is who I vote with. My tribe, right? We've got all these little tribes that are angry about all the other tribes, and they keep their spreadsheets too. Well, remember when they were in power and they did this, and it just breaks down relationships. And it breaks down marriages. And it breaks down families. And it breaks down neighbors on either side of a fence. And it's why we go to war with one another. Sometimes literal wars with one another. That, that, that's, that's the world's way of handling things. And Jesus comes up and goes, guys, I've got a better way to do it, but you you're going to have to delete that spreadsheet. Process the hurt. Keep yourself safe, right? You don't have to be a doormat for people. But also realize that God is calling us out of that type of lifestyle into something different, in, into something beautiful, into a way of love. As he writes to the Corinth church, the, the greater things, seek the big thing, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. These verbs, this action-oriented posture. And then we get into the always. Love always, tr always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Man, those are some heavy ones. Love always protects? I don't know. It's dangerous out there sometimes. It's dangerous to get involved. It's dangerous to stand up for someone else. I don't always want to protect. Love always trusts? Oh, come on. I know you asked me to delete the spreadsheet, but they're still the same person. They don't deserve my trust. They don't deserve my faithfulness. Love always hopes. Man, hope is dangerous, right? Hope, hope lets me down a lot. And Skip mentioned it earlier, right? One of the most dangerous men or women in the world is someone without hope. But it's dangerous to have hope too, right? Because we live in a world that hope is just squashed over and over and over again. Love always perseveres. Oh, this is hard. So many always. Like, don't I get a cheat day? Right, God? Come on. All right. I will love Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., but any text messages that come in before or after that window, can you give me, like, just maybe some smaller brackets? No, it's always, and then he ends. Love never fails. I fail. You fail. Uh, you, you may have heard me do this before, uh, but it's good for me to be reminded, and it's good for us to be reminded. I'm going to reread these verses for you. Uh, I'm just going to change a word or two throughout it. Uh, verse 4, Josh is not always patient, 
Josh doesn't like to give up his time. And Josh is not always pleasant to be around. And I envy other people's homes and their cars and how many people show up at their churches on Sunday morning. And I can boast and I can be very proud. And I can dishonor people. I don't always see the best in them. I don't always try to find the best in them. And I can be very self-seeking. And I can be very easily angered. I can be quick-triggered. And sweet baby Jesus, if you catch me without coffee or you cut me off. And I keep that spreadsheet of wrong sometimes. And sometimes I delight in what's evil. And I get frustrated with the truth. And I don't always protect. And I don't always trust. And I don't always hope. And I have definitely failed. But my name doesn't fit real good in those words. And your name doesn't fit real good in those words. Sometimes it does, right? It's not like I always am impatient. But if we're going to be honest about how we are in following Christ, if we are going to be honest in what it looks like to be redeemed and trying to be a disciple, a follower, we've got to be honest about where we're starting from. And our sinful nature, our unforgiving nature, leaves us wanting a lot. And so my name doesn't fit real well in those verses. Your name doesn't fit real well in those verses. And if that was the end of the story, we would all be in a lot of trouble. You'd be in a lot of trouble. Our families would be in a lot of trouble. Our communities would be in a lot of trouble. Our churches would be in a lot of trouble. But there is a name that does fit pretty well in those. Because Jesus is patient. And he gives us his time sacrificially. And you never have to go to him. You never have to go to our Father. You never have to seek the Spirit's wisdom and wonder, I wonder if he's going to give me time in this moment. He is. And Jesus is kind. He is pleasant to be around. He is hospitable. He is welcoming when we seek him. And Jesus doesn't envy and he doesn't boast. And he's not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. In fact, he sees the image of God in you and he tries to bring that out of you. And he seeks to cultivate that and to grow that into something good. And he's not self-seeking. And he's, Jesus is not easily angered. Y'all, that is a good thing. That is an amen. Praise God. God is so, 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 so good that he's not easily angered. Because when our names don't fit in this, it should trigger him. Right? Because we're attacking his kids. We're hurting other people made in his image. But Jesus is not easily angered. And oh, church, Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. We read about it a few weeks ago in the Psalms that as far as the east is from the west, as far as the heavens is from the earth, so has God removed our transgression, our sin, our brokenness, our betrayals from him. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. And Jesus always protects. Y'all are never alone. 
You all have a good shepherd who is fighting for you, who is on your side, who knows that the wolves are out there and is going to lay down his life for his flock. He always trusts, even when you break confidence, even when you betrayal, even when I'm not the best pastor, Jesus is trusting, and he always hopes, he always looks at the best of us, and he sees the best of us, and he raises up the best of us, and he doesn't give up hope, even though it's the 18th time this day that I honked my horn at someone who cut me off. He's like, no, Josh, I'm still hoping in you. Jesus always perseveres. Death could not even defeat him. A cross could not defeat him. Three days later, he shows up alive and seated at the right hand of God, and Jesus never fails. My name doesn't fit well in that. Your name doesn't fit well in that. But Jesus' name does. And then he breathes that new life into us. And he invites us again to like, do you want to live in the way of love? You want to learn the way of love? And we're not going to do it perfect this side of eternity. And that's okay. That's not the expectation. But we can be better today than I was yesterday. I don't want to peak as a pastor at 38 years old. Sounds kind of lame. I hope you don't peak as parents or as grandparents or as neighbors on March 12th, 2023, spring forward, bad day to peak, not going to be our best, right? God says, no, I want to teach you. I want to help you grow in this. And when you face plant, and y'all, you are going to face plant, it's okay because our God still doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Jesus still overcomes it. He still invites us to seek forgiveness from him and then to pay forward that forgiveness to each other as well. And we see this in the book of John where God, uh, uh, John, a different apostle, directly ties our love for God's love. So this is on page 1545, and John writes to the church, this is love. You can underline that if you want. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This is love. Not that Pastor Josh got it right today. Not that I started it. Not that a church, a local body of Christ started it, but know that God started it, that he radiates this love, that he emanates it. Not just a feeling, not just a posture, but this action, this existence that literally goes out and seeks out and lives and sacrifices and gives its time and its reality to others. And that love, that radiation, right? If God is the sun, not just the son of God, but think the sun, that light spreads out. And one of us little planets in orbit, way smaller than the sun. But as that light warms us, we get warmer. As we bask in God's light, in his love, it starts to warm us up. And what do things do that get warm? They start to radiate God's love. Right? The sun is warm, the earth is warm because the sun is warm. The warmth doesn't come from the earth. Right? We live in Texas. We know where the warmth comes from. Right? Sometimes it feels like the sun is just beating us down. Right? Like, yes, you're hot. I get it. Right? That, that's how God's love is for us. And then as we're warmed, now, okay, I got this little nugget of warmth running around. 
As I connect to other people, I am able to love better and warm them better. It doesn't start from us, and that is good news, because while my name doesn't fit into it, while your name doesn't fit into it, Jesus' name does, and then he gives it to us. And he warms us up. He loves us up. That we can then go and love our neighbor as ourselves. That we can then go and love God with everything that we have. That we can have restored relationships in our marriages and in our friendships. And with that one neighbor who mows their lawn too early in the morning and we have a really hard time being patient, giving them time at 6 a.m. when the lawnmower is going. Right? We have this guy who says, I'm going to warm you up. I'm going to love you up. And that love is going to radiate out. And it's also going to help you with forgiveness. It's also going to help you release things. Because unforgiveness cools you down. It loves you down. It's hard to be loving when you're holding on to the grudge baby. And so he says, hey, get rid of the grudge baby. Release. And then you can start warming back up again. Learning to forgive means learning to love. And learning to love starts with God so loving us and us seeking forgiveness. So we're going to continue on with our confession and absolution as we have been through this series where we are going to use the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we're going to say it together, but we're going to pause after forgive us our uh, trespasses. We're going to pause. And we're going to go to, before God and we are going to confess our sins. And then afterwards, we're going to say as we forgive those who trespass against us and we are going to pause again. And, and we're going to release whatever trespasses that have built up over the week, over the year. And again, this is a learning to. There may be some deeper hurts, some harder stuff that, you, you know, it's like, okay, last week I got one of my fingers off of it, released one of my fingers. This week I'm going to release another finger. That's okay. It can take time. But that posture of, Lord, help me release this stuff is what we're continually learning how to do. We're going to spend the rest of our life doing this, but this sermon series, we're going to dive in deep. So uh, I'm going to end with prayer, and then we'll wrap it up with the Lord's Prayer. I invite you guys to, to speak with me now. Lord God, you're good. Lord God, you are loving. Lord God, you lived the way of love in Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your entire life here on earth being one unending example, narrative story of what a sacrificial, time-giving, kind, non-grudgy love looked like. But Lord, we're still wrestling with all that. Uh, and, and while we know we are forgiven, while we know we are loved, our old sinful nature still creeps up and bites us in the butt sometimes. Lord, it, it's a posture that we still wrestle with. Father, Lord, we come before you now seeking forgiveness. And the words that you taught us, that you invited us to pray, our family prayer has built into it an opportunity to seek forgiveness from you and to give forgiveness to others. And so we say together now, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us.
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We continue our worship in music.